0: Welcome to Gray Maybe, a limited series podcast and social experiment based on the topic of abortion. My name is Jillian Schmitz. I'm a professional dancer, actor, teacher, author, artist, and cat lover. Through my own personal journey of recovery, I found that things aren't just black or white, or yes or no. For me, in my recovery, there's been mostly gray area and a lot of maybes. In most of my stories, you can find the gray maybe. I'll be reading my own personal stories and hopefully stories of others in an effort to help lessen the stigma and shame of abortion. If you'd like me to read your story, anonymous or otherwise, on this podcast, please email graymaybesstories at gmail.com. G R E Y M A Y B E S T O R I E S at gmail.com. Before we get started, if you haven't already, please subscribe on whichever platform you're using to catch future episodes of Gray Maybe. a note before we begin. While the topic of abortion and my belief in it being easy and accessible to all people who can become pregnant is a comfortable topic for me, sharing my own personal stories is not. I have a justifiable amount of fear of possible hostility and violence, both in person and or online. I also anticipate the possibility of judgment ranging from my own family members to strangers, in addition to the potentiality of losing certain work opportunities for publicizing my own experiences. I'm telling my story through the lens of my own experience, The revelation of my process is mine to tell. If you disagree with me or my views or story, know that I'm not speaking on anything other than my own experiences and viewpoints. Take what you like and leave the rest. Any feelings my story activates in the listener is for the listener to process and recover from. Any criticism you have based on my experience and choices are yours and they're not my burden to carry. Welcome, welcome, and hello, okay. Obviously, the timeliness of this project is on the tail of the Supreme Court's decision to overthrow Roe v. Wade, and there's a very important election coming up in just a few weeks, which could eventually either help reverse or would further solidify that decision. There is much discussion about abortion, what circumstances pregnant people should be able to have them, when pregnant people should be able to have them, and where pregnant people should be able to have them. There are many stories coming out already about the disastrous effects of removing this vital right of health care from women, including young girls and women who are raped and are victims of incest that are forced to birth or jump through hoops and hurdles to attain an abortion, often up against a ticking time clock. Stories of women on death's door simply because they aren't bleeding out fast enough or dead enough for medical intervention. Women forced to carry dead or non-viable pregnancies because of some of these restrictions. These stories are gut-wrenching, and they're true. My abortion story is not like those. Mine is what one ill-informed person on Twitter would classify as an abortion of convenience, implying if an abortion wasn't for the risk of the life of the mother or you weren't raped, it was of convenience or rather for convenience. This narrative that only certain circumstances should warrant an abortion Only perfect victims could justifiably tell their stories and get a moral pass and should be entitled to the possibility of autonomy. The notion that if you didn't want to find yourself in an inconvenient position, you shouldn't have put yourself there in the first place. You being a woman or pregnant person. Good, old-fashioned misogyny. The only thing missing from all of the abortion conversations conveniently is men. Everyone has either heard talking points from this convenience narrative, or they themselves have repeated them. Use birth control, or keep your legs closed, both direct quotes from a conversation with my immediate family recently. As if birth control doesn't fail, and being abstinent is a realistic solution for any adults in real relationships. The belief that some people are using abortion for birth control and the myth of late-term abortions insinuate convenience. I still have yet to meet one woman using abortion as her main method of birth control. This idea that abortion is something only irresponsible, flippant pregnant people do. The convenience argument muddies the real message that women should be held accountable and punished for their actions, while men are not. That women have less rights to their bodily autonomy living than they do when they're dead. See organ donation consent. This entire underlying message of convenience encapsulated exactly why Still to this day, I was so ashamed of my own abortions. I kept hearing stories of many brave women coming forward, exposing their necessary abortions. But I wasn't hearing many stories that I could directly relate to. A gray area as far as public opinion and empathy. So, deep breath. Here is my convenient abortion story. (laughs) Brett and I had met on a reoccurring job and eventually became exclusive. At first, it was magical. We seemed to fit perfectly. I was completely enamored with him. While we were on the road for work, there had been a condom fail, and at the time, it was before Plan B was easy and accessible at any drugstore, and we were in the middle of the Bible Belt. I silently prayed for the best, tried to put it out of my head, and a few days later, got what I thought was my period and breathed a sigh of relief. We had only been dating a few months before we seemed to be in a cycle of vitriolic arguments. Quickly, the funny, carefree guy I'd met ceased to exist. Left in his place was a man, 16 years my senior, who could debate circles around me to advance whatever personal agenda he had, and often treated me like a petulant child. What I did for work was too much. How I treated him wasn't enough. I had too many guy friends, not enough girlfriends. His jealousy and attempts at controlling me were familiar. It reminded me of a previous abusive relationship. It made me uneasy. I felt like I was encased in an invisible electric fence. I kept bumping up against it and getting shocked, but I couldn't see where it was to avoid it. Once back home after the job, and following yet another fight, I sought refuge in my apartment while he stayed at his. He never liked staying at my apartment for some reason, and he never said why. We continued our disagreements over AOL Instant Messenger. Exhausted by the back and forth, and in a last ditch effort to garner his empathy and change the narrative of whatever our most recent bickering was about, I wrote, I still haven't gotten my period. The familiar Instant Messenger waterwave sound effect roared while his text popped up next to his screen name. You really think you're pregnant? Did I think I was pregnant? Until now, I'd been mostly entertaining denial. It was easier, because I surely didn't want to be pregnant, and when you've never experienced something before, you can afford to be a little extra naive. But the more I really thought about it, the more I knew I was. 45 minutes later, Brett arrived at the pregnancy test. It was late at night. I had been drinking, which at the time was my normal every evening ritual. I took the test, and it was hard to see. It looked like it was positive. He wouldn't really let me see it, and to be honest, I didn't want to. As if maybe I didn't see it, maybe it wasn't true. He kept saying we should retest in the morning to make sure that he couldn't tell. I fell asleep, and when I woke up, it felt like the opposite of waking up from a bad dream. I was waking up to the bad dream, and it was quickly becoming a nightmare. I wanted to go back to sleep. Brett left to go get more tests, and I waited anxiously until he came back. Two positive tests later, I was now in a full-blown panic. I didn't want this not now. It felt like a death sentence. It felt like a punishment, and it felt so unfair. I felt trapped. I have no money. I have no career. I don't even know if I ever want kids. I'm 23 years old. I live in a goddamn studio apartment in Hollywood. None of my dreams have come true. No, no, no. I made an appointment at my doctor's office for later that day, and the nurse confirmed, Four weeks and six days. Brett couldn't believe it. I barely could. The nurse was sweet and did her duty of providing options through information and literature. Over coffee, we tried to talk. Brett assured me this decision could be 50 50, one we both make together, a decision I wouldn't have to make all alone. I knew he was trying to help, and for a minute, it did lessen the stress. But only for a minute, because the heavy reality quickly readjusted back onto my shoulders. It was going to be all my decision. It would always be my choice. And I don't think he could even grasp how hard of a choice it actually is. It felt like the kind of choice you'd get if someone had a gun to your head and said, where would you rather be shot? In the head or in the heart? Head or heart, it didn't matter. I'd still be dead. Brett asked if he could confide in his friend Mike about our situation. I knew Mike and I said yes. I sat in the car while Brett talked to him on his phone. I watched him kicking imaginary things on the asphalt and walking in half circles his eyes switching back and forth from the ground for a few minutes and then to the sky. He got back in the car and announced, We can never tell Mike's wife. They've been trying to have a baby for years and it will kill her. Instantly, a rush of heat surrounded my brain. Multiple thoughts piled on top of each other and were about to be rattled off my tongue in rapid succession. I wasn't aware my decision of an unplanned and unwanted pregnancy would be a topic of conversation at dinner parties. Since I'm living my own personal hell, I could really care less about Mike's wife. Immediately, a feeling of overwhelming shame and selfishness swirled. Something I so clearly wanted no part of was someone else's dream. I would have gladly changed places with her. Later that same day, I had rehearsal for a job. I walked up the stairs of the rehearsal building, heavy and weary. The rehearsal had been pushed back an hour, so I waited and made small talk with whoever was around. I was still in shock. Everything was moving in slow motion. I was trying to adjust to the information I had just learned that morning. During rehearsal, I stared at the other girls. They seemed extra skinny and happy. I was overcome with envy, longing to have my own non-pregnant physique back, a body that hadn't been hijacked. I yearned for the carelessness they had, the decisions that they didn't have to make. The following day, I went to a follow-up doctor's appointment and consultation on the different procedures. I started to sweat. As I felt a blanket of heat wash over me, I started to feel nauseous, and the room started getting dark. I didn't know if I was going to puke or pass out, and I slowly tried to control myself from passing out. I was successful, and we left with more pamphlets. Back in the car while driving, I told Brett I wanted the abortion pill. I didn't want the surgery. Hospitals, surgery, needles, it all filled me with so much panic and made me feel sick. I wanted to be by myself and comfortable. Brett said it would be better to have the surgery. I mustered all of my strength and said, I'm scared. His response shocked me. It was a type of nonchalant I'd come to recognize in him when he'd hit his frustration capacity, a type of energetic abandonment. He said, it's time for you to be a woman. A surge of hate shook through me like electricity. I didn't know what to make of what he said. It hurt so deeply. I never told anyone how I felt. His response reminded me why I didn't waste my time telling people how I felt. It never mattered, and it never helped. What he said was asinine, as if there was any amount of maturity I could acquire to make this moment better or easier. Was I not already a woman, in one of the most woman predicaments, doing one of the most woman things, having one of the most woman experiences? Call the clinic, he directed. Helplessly, I started to cry. The sooner the better, he added. I didn't know how to make this call. I was unprepared. What words do I use? Would I be able to say the words in a voice that someone could understand and without the other person on the other end of the line hearing me cry? If I'm crying, would they not let me have one? How do I say abortion out loud? How do I say, I want an abortion? I need an abortion. Brett dialed the number to the clinic and shoved the phone at me. Another surge of hate shimmied down my spine. I glared at him. He pretended not to notice. I listened to the dial tone. I tried to make an appointment within the week, and the lady on the phone explained they only do these procedures on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and they were booked this week. I answered all the nurse's questions. I had successfully held back my tears until she asked my birthday. It felt too personal. I let out an audible sob. Immediately, the nurse, who sounded much like Linda the Good Witch in The Wizard of Oz, said slowly and calmly, "Ah." Don't cry, little flower. It's okay. A woman will have one of two responses when she finds herself pregnant. One is happiness, and the other is sadness, because she knows it's not the right time. You're a Sagittarius like me. We take motherhood very seriously. We know when it's right, we will be ready. And we don't understand how some women can have so many children and not take care of them. It's okay, little flower. You're not alone. I've had one too. I gave her the rest of my information and hung up, tears dripping down my cheeks and chin. I was overwhelmed by her kindness. I still am to this day. With my appointment looming for the following week, I left for a weekend job in Palm Springs. I was a wreck. I was grateful for anything that took my mind off of my current situation and existence, but at the same time, I hated this job. And I hated being in this in between waiting for the inevitable, racing back to my freedom. I couldn't get there fast enough. I wanted to be on the other side of this problem, and I wanted to be normal again. I felt like a prisoner of my own body. I wanted Brett to come with me to Palm Springs, but he wouldn't. I needed support. I felt so alone. My emotions were all over the place, all the time. Periodically, Brett would ask me if I was changing my mind, or if I wanted to change my mind. I could feel his meager hope that I would. Even though he never said it, I could feel it. It was in his hostility and in his disconnect. I didn't know how to answer his questions. The situation was a no-win for me. No real solution. I didn't want to do anything. I didn't want to have a baby. I didn't want to have an abortion. I didn't want to be in this situation. Every day, every second of being pregnant felt like the ticking of an inevitable and completely destructive bomb about to go off. The appointment day arrived. I followed all the instructions. I woke up feeling hollow and automatically went through the motions of getting ready. We arrived at the clinic. I expected to see protesters. There were none. I expected a small clinic. It was a towering medical building. We went to the office, checked in, paid, and waited. They had music videos playing on multiple TVs positioned around the waiting room. There were a ton of women there, young and old, all different shapes, sizes, and races. Some with boyfriends, husbands, some with their moms or friends. Some seemed upbeat, others, like me, somber. It got later and later, and more and more women were filing in. I couldn't believe it. Could all these women be here for the same reason I was? Could it really be this common? My name was called to get checked in. I had to read a lot of information and write out, This abortion is my choice, and sign my name next to a butterfly sticker. I had an ultrasound, and the nurse was nice. I didn't look at the monitor. I was five weeks and five days. I was taken to a changing area and given a locker to put my things in. I was told to remove all jewelry. I wanted to keep my necklace on. I took it off and all of my rings and felt extra naked under the gown. I was told to sit in a chair while they weighed us all. One girl got on the scale and after they weighed her, she laughed nervously, rubbing her belly and said, eating for two. Some people chuckled. They were being generous. I hated her for making a joke. I hated her for reminding me and everyone else of reality. Date of birth, the nurse asked. 12-9-1981, I said. She looked up from her clipboard and tipped her chin to glance down over her glasses, focusing on me. So that would make you... 23, I said. I followed the nurse in my socks and gown. The floor seemed harder and colder than a normal floor. The green and white tiles checkered under my feet. Green, white, green, white. Don't step on the cracks or you'll break your mother's back, I thought. Why did I think that? I don't want to think about my mother right now. We walked past a woman being weighed, and the nurse ordered me to get on the table. The room was huge, white, and empty, and the ceiling seemed far away. I wished it were smaller, more contained, more intimate. I felt exposed. The amount of space around me, unmanageable. I felt like a tiny grain of sand surrounded by the ocean. Maybe if the room were smaller, I thought. I would feel more in control. I'm going to get you started before the doctor and anesthesiologist come," she said. I wondered if she judged me. I couldn't tell. I tried to appear calm, but the fear inside of me was growing steadily into terror. She attached the monitor for my pulse. I heard it beep simultaneously with the rhythm of my body. Beep. 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 What was about to happen? I started to feel dizzy. The anxiety growing, my heart rate speeding up, the monitor outing me. Beep, beep, beep. I felt embarrassed. What if the nurse notices? I tried to control my pulse. I didn't want the nurse to know I was scared. Don't panic. Don't panic. Don't panic. She didn't notice. She methodically continued her routine and left the room. I was alone. I looked at the ceiling tiles and started counting the holes in each one. Five, ten, fifteen. I tried to think of being anywhere than where I was. I could leave. I can still change my mind. I knew that was a lie. I didn't want to change my mind. I wanted to change my circumstance. Just keep calm. Calm down. Don't freak out. Be brave, I told myself. I tried to control my feelings, and it only made me realize how far I was emotionally from where I wanted to be, and it made it so much worse. Whatever little grasp I thought I had on controlling myself in this moment was lost, and I immediately started uncontrollably crying. Be brave. I tried to tell myself again. I couldn't be. It was too much. Tears streamed down the sides of my face in rapid succession and hit the sides of the paper-covered table I laid on. I kept trying to hold them in. I was worried the nurse would see if she came back, and if she hadn't already, that she would finally judge me. I could hear the doctor and anesthesiologist from the hallway. They were having the type of conversation airplane pilots have as they walk through the jetway, polite and nonchalant. They entered the room, and the nurse introduced me to them. I waited for them to judge me. They didn't. One of them injected the IV. It made me feel sick. I hate needles. Don't faint before they put you under, I commanded myself. The anesthesiologist told me what would happen once the IV was installed. And then he said, This will be over before you know it, and you'll be off to IHOP in no time. IHOP? What the fuck? I was out. Most people don't dream when they're put under, but I did. I dreamt I was in a gigantic coliseum in Rome. It was bright, so bright and beautiful. It was hard to make out everything around me. The warm sun was shining down, basking everything in a gorgeous peach light. I felt older in the dream, secure, mature, successful. I was holding an event or an audition for a huge show in that beautifully historic coliseum. Athletic dancers surrounding me, dancing for me. I was directing it all. I was so happy. It felt so good. Suddenly I felt a tug. The dream was starting to splinter. I was being pulled from it and back to my much darker, much less beautiful reality. I started to wake up and I heard my name. I opened my eyes slowly. It was difficult. I adjusted to the light, which was dimmer than in my dream and much less beautiful and warm. The fluorescent lights looked down upon me. At first, I couldn't feel anything, kind of like when you first become conscious from awakening in the morning right before you move. I felt like the nurse wanted me to get up, and since I cared deeply what she thought, I tried to move quickly. I was sluggish, and I felt disappointed in my lack of motor skills. Still trying to come to, I was being wheeled away. I needed support. I needed someone I recognized. Can I see my boyfriend Brett, I asked. The nurse laughed at me. He can't come back here. There are other women being treated. Silly rabbit, tricks are for kids. That's what she sounded like. I felt crushed. She did judge me. I started to realize it was done. It was over. I went to sleep pregnant and woke up not pregnant. I felt despair settle over me, and I felt empty. I went to sleep pregnant and woke up not pregnant. I didn't do it, but I did it. Did I make the right choice? Tears crept out of the corner of my eyes. I held the sob in my throat, the muscles aching to be freed. Not now. You can't lose it now. You're so close, I said to myself. I was freezing. My fingers and toes felt numb from the cold. A giant hard pad attached to disposable underwear was smashed in between my legs. I didn't have a pad there before I was put under. What a peculiar feeling to have absolutely no recollection of things being done to you. I heard other nurses shouting a woman's name with increased urgency. She wasn't waking up. After a few different frantic attempts, she awoke and was wheeled next to me. I drunkenly looked around. One woman after the other lined up. It felt like an assembly line of abortions. I tried to kick my body into high gear so I could get the hell out of there. Using my mind, I started to mentally command. Legs, start working so I can stand. Arms, start being able to grab stuff. I got out of the wheelchair awkwardly. The pad shifted between my thighs, feeling more uncomfortable. I didn't have the energy to try and adjust it. The nurse led a few of us through a door to a room that looked identical to the one I had changed in prior. Same lockers, same walls, but the whole room seemed backwards. I went to where I thought my locker was and my clothes weren't there. Did they move my clothes? That doesn't make sense, I thought. I looked around, saw the other women systematically opening lockers and robotically putting on their clothes. How do they know where their lockers were? This is a different room. I was convinced and confused. I gathered all of my brain power. Think, think. This looks backwards. So if I started here, the opposite would be. I turned around and headed to the corner. Bingo. Found my locker number. Instant relief. I put on my clothes and the nurse started to dole out crackers and juice. One at a time, we lined up to receive our wafer and grape juice and a most unholy communion. She told us to sit down and eat and then wait. I did what was instructed. The crackers were individually wrapped, a dry, unsalted melba toast. The room was ringing with the sound of plastic being ripped off and crumpled from the crackers, then slow, systematic chewing. I looked at the juice. It looked like grape juice. I took a sip. It was grape sugar water. I looked at the different women, trying to imagine who they were outside of this place. I looked for a commonality in appearance. There was none. Every race, shape, and age were in representation. I wondered if they judged me. I might have judged them before, but I couldn't judge them now. It was strange to eat with these zombie women, to share a snack with strangers that I only knew one intimate detail about, that in this moment, we were all exactly the same. We had something in common that none of us were very proud of. I started to shiver. My body jerked and shaked. I tried to contain my muscles. I should have brought warmer clothes. How would I have known, after all, it was only September in Los Angeles? The woman who was laughing and making jokes earlier while being weighed staggered in. She looked horrible and disoriented. My earlier hatred immediately turned to empathy. I had been cleared to leave. The nurse handed me a pile of papers and newly issued birth control and shoved me out the back door by the elevators. I felt like how animals must feel after they've been taken to the back room at the vet poked and prodded, and then handed magically back to their handlers. Brett was there waiting. His face looked worried, and it seemed like he barely recognized me. He took my hand. Your hand is freezing, he said. I didn't respond. The rage from the injustice of our sexes was immediate. We left the building, and he tried to hurry. I couldn't walk very fast. Slow down, I seethed through my clenched jaw, my teeth still chattering from being so cold. People passed by us. As they entered the building, they stared at me. I thought they knew for sure. We got in his car, and that's when the cramping started. It was the worst pain I'd ever experienced. I was angry that I was the one between us who had to be sacrificed. I was filled with a deep sorrow and excruciating pain. I rifled through my purse, looking for a pain aid. Nothing. He couldn't drive fast enough. Up and down the hills, overlooking the ocean. Finally, we arrived at his beach apartment. The view of the Pacific confronted me. The water was so vast and ominous, its passive-aggressive power always seemed like it could drown me at any second. Frantically, I looked for pain relievers. I took twice the dose and lied down. Before I escaped a slumber, I thought, I did it. It was over. I'm free. I am back to me. I was away from the judgment, and I could put the whole experience behind me. I expected relief. It never came. I expected to feel in control. I didn't. Now it was just a secret, and no one ever had to know. I don't ever have to tell anyone. I slowly drifted off to sleep, hoping to wake up feeling better, but I knew deep down I wouldn't. Shame was already shackled to my ankle, and the sentence of lifelong judgment, ordered by me, had just begun. I woke up the morning after feeling hungover and went back to sleep for most of the day. I didn't want to be awake. When I woke again, Brett was supposed to be back at a certain time and was late. The sun started to set and I was angry, feeling abandoned. I had undergone this trauma that he, as a man, would never even have to entertain. When he arrived, he said he needed to pick up Mike from the airport, the same Mike whose marriage was having fertility issues. Brett wanted me to come with and I refused. Not only did I not want to be the cross to bear sitting next to him for Mike to judge, but I didn't have the energy to pretend to be anything but what I felt. Sad. Depressed, broken. He started to pressure me to go. It escalated quickly into screaming. I was shocked he didn't get it. To him, it was over. For me, a new fresh hell had just begun. I shrieked in a cracked voice I barely recognized I'm still dealing with this. You have no idea what it's like. I'm still fucking bleeding. He told me to stop being selfish. And there it was. I didn't have a rebuttal. I was selfish for choosing what I wanted for my life above everything else. I went to the airport with Brett. I sat in the car, said nothing, and let my resentment slowly turn me into stone. The following day, I had a rehearsal that I had been using food poisoning as an excuse for. I tried to hide the bruise on my hand from the IV. I thought if anybody saw it, they'd know for sure. No one noticed. A few days passed, and Brett and I continued to splinter and break apart. I was so angry and resentful for reasons I couldn't really identify. Everything he says and does enrages me. I continue to free fall into darkness. It feels heavy. I only want to sleep. I have no appetite and the simplest of tasks I can't seem to accomplish. I go to my two-week checkup and I'm given a pregnancy test. It's still reading positive. I panic before the nurse explains. It happens. Sometimes the hormones just don't come down right away. They give me an ultrasound to be sure. Day after day, I feel lower and lower. The depression is so intense, I can't leave the house, and I feel like I'm drowning. Suicide seems like a reprieve. I'm most confused by why I feel so terrible. I feel regret, but I wouldn't do anything different. If I could go back, I wouldn't have made a different choice. Brett and I broke up not long after, not without some knockdown, dragout drag-out fights, one of which where he told me he hated what I did and blamed me for having the abortion and in an exhausted act of self-protection, I cease all communications with him. I had been scouring the internet to find something I could relate to, dodging cleverly disguised anti-choice sites when I finally came across a site, forum style, that talked about PASS, which stands for post-abortion stress syndrome. I start to read the content and feel a bit lighter. Tons of women just like me, feeling what I'm feeling. The women on the site sharing their stories and their gentle support slowly, very slowly helped walk me out of what was notably one of the darkest times of my life. There's a saying, life is what happens to you when you're busy making plans. I've always been astounded and mystified by women who could take an unplanned or unwanted pregnancy and just embrace it, just add it to the basket of their life and keep going. I'm not this person, not even a little bit. The things I wanted most in my life at this point did not include motherhood. I didn't see getting pregnant as a deviation of my path, but as a death sentence. I looped the same scenarios and questions over and over in my head for a long time. What if I'd made different choices? it would be different, the roadmap of all the different ways I could go. And even with time, I would choose the same way again and again. I didn't then, nor do I now regret my decision. It was right for me, even though it felt wrong. My torment was in being in the situation and how I experienced it. It's hard to explain how conflicted feelings coexist. It's embarrassing to share that I felt like a victim of my own doing, but I did. What I really want to emphasize, and what has taken me almost two decades to realize, is I can be pro-choice, I can exercise my right, and I can still be regretful, sad, and upset. Making this issue black and white has been so difficult to digest. The things and feelings I mentioned just aren't mutually exclusive. There is so much gray area to how I feel about what arguably could be described as a convenient abortion, because it turns out there was nothing convenient about my abortion. In fact, the only thing convenient was that I didn't have to cross state lines, get permissions, dodge the law, or pay a ton of money. I didn't have to walk through hostile anti-choicers or risk my life with a back-alley abortion. I didn't have to weed through clinics to find one that isn't a religious center masquerading as a clinic with birth-only options. There is no such thing as a convenient abortion. And the only thing these inferred, antidotal ideas do is further strip women of their humanity, hurting them altogether, regardless of their individual circumstances and situations, treating them like cattle. My abortion was wanted, and the experience was deeply traumatic for me, resulting in PTSD. Gabor Mate writes in his book, The Myth of Normal, Trauma is not what happens to you. Trauma is what happens inside of you as a result of what happens to you. The acronym Post-Abortion Stress Syndrome, or PASS, is the name given to describe what some women experience as the psychological aftereffects effects of abortion based on post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. It should be noted that this is not a term that has been accepted by the American Psychiatric Association or the American Psychological Association. There is even some concern by pro-choice advocates that anti-choice groups have created or used PASS as an excuse to further their political agendas. Susan Babel, MFT, Ph.D., Somatic Psychology, writes in Psychology Today, Any event that causes trauma can indeed result in PTSD, and abortion is no exception. A woman can be of sound and solid mind when she makes a choice to terminate a pregnancy, but it is never an easy decision. Even when the decision is the right decision, there is sometimes a level of conflict that needs to be addressed so that the woman can be at peace with her choice. Believing that past exists does not mean that one does not believe in a woman's right to choose, It simply means that one believes in supportive and constructive counseling around the trauma symptoms. Some symptoms of past may include the following. 1. Guilt. Experiencing guilt does not imply that you made a mistake or violated your own moral code, as some anti-choice advocates would imply. However, feelings around having an abortion may be complex and have to take into account fear of what others might think. 2. Anxiety. General anxiety is a common symptom of PTSD. In the case of past, there might be a particular anxiety over fertility issues and the ability to get pregnant again. 3. Numbness, depression. Again, common symptoms of PTSD. 4. Flashbacks. Abortion is surgery, and in most cases, it's a surgery that happens while the patient is fully conscious. This can be a distressing experience. 5. Suicidal thoughts. In extreme cases, the PTSD that results from a controversial abortion could lead to suicidal thoughts or tendencies, and would require immediate treatment. It's important to note that this is not a common or expected symptom of PASS, but as with any form of PTSD, it is possible. If you are experiencing the symptoms of PTSD or general mental unwellness, I encourage you to seek the aid of a therapist, support group, 12-step program, or other online resource. If you are feeling suicidal or in crisis, text or call 988. I will add the National Institute of Mental Health link in the program notes. I'll also add the online form I mentioned in my story at www.afterabortion.com, as well as the psychology article that was mentioned regarding past and PTSD. If you've made it this far, thank you so much for listening, and I hope you were able to find something relatable in my story. As I mentioned earlier, part of this podcast is a social experiment to see if in telling my story, I can embolden other listeners who have had abortions to tell theirs. If you'd like me to read your abortion story, anonymous or otherwise, on this podcast, please email graymaybestories at gmail.com. G-R-E-Y-M-A-Y-B-E-S-T-O-R-I-E-S at gmail.com. Reminder, there's a very important election coming up November 8th, 2022. Please have a voting plan. Know the rules and regulations of your state and vote like your freedom depends on it. Because now more than ever, it does. For more information on voting in your state, go to vote.org. Thank you to everyone who has helped make this Gray Maybe podcast happen. Producer and editor, Roderick Barge. Cover photo by Jose Perez. Music licensed by Pixabay. Special counsel, Jada Ellingham and Roderick Barge. If you'd like to support this podcast, please rate, share, comment and subscribe. Until next time. Bye for now.